Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. For 15 months, journalist Sebastian Younger followed a single platoon of U.S. soldiers stationed in a very rough and dangerous part of Afghanistan. Living and working in the midst of some of the war zones, it made Sebastian realize how much the soldiers had to rely on one another. What you do or what you don't do can affect every single soldier in your platoon in a hostile land. It affects everyone. Sebastian said margins were so small and errors potentially so catastrophic that every soldier had a de facto authority to reprimand others, in some cases, even officers. And because combat can hinge on small, little details, there was nothing in a soldier's daily routine that fell outside of the group's oversight. Whether you tied your shoes or cleaned your weapon or drank enough water, secured your night vision gear, these were all matters of public concern. And so they were all matters that could be scrutinized by the soldiers. Sebastian said that he once watched a private confront another private because his bootlaces were trailing on the ground and nobody really cared what they looked like. That wasn't important. But if something happened out there, the guy with the loose bootlaces couldn't be counted on to keep his feet at a crucial moment. It was the other man's life that he was risking, not just his own. Now, if you are one that has struggled to understand the importance and the significance, the urgency, I would dare say, of what is going on in Galatians chapter 2, I would say to you this morning, it is because the Apostle Paul knew that the church of Jesus Christ is always, always, always on the front lines for the purity of the gospel of Christ. Today, 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, always on the front lines for the gospel of Christ. You see, Paul recognized how important this truth was. He recognized that if any leaders of any church give in to legalistic works, the battle for grace may be lost. Paul said that each and every believer has a responsibility to contend for the faith. Join me this morning in Galatians chapter 2, where we start again in verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and he separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. These were critical days in the early church. There's two groups of people, Gentile believers in Christ, not circumcised, and Jewish believers in Jesus who had been circumcised. And allow me to restate that the Jewish believers in Jesus, they were so, so proud of their circumcision. And they had that little bit of a chip on their shoulder, thinking that that circumcision, it made them better. That without circumcision, you were outside that circle of God's love. Let's remember that the church at Antioch was the first church planted with Gentile believers. This was a large city. This was a center for the work of Jesus Christ. 
Peter had gone up to visit the church in Antioch. And I think if you could have witnessed it, the church would have been excited when Peter, an apostle, he shows up in Antioch. I mean, think about Peter for a second. That guy had spent three years living and serving with Jesus. Surely this man had so much to teach them. And as a Jewish believer, when Peter first got there, he set aside his own dietary laws of the Jewish people and he ate with the Gentile believers. Now, this might have been the fellowship meals that the churches had when they celebrated the Lord's Supper. I like to picture in this text, if you would, Peter just getting out and carving out a big old ham with his new friends in Christ. But something changed when certain men from James came. James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, a Jewish church. Now, it's not that James did anything wrong. That's not the idea in the text. Or that James had taught these men wrong. But it is that every church has some believers in Jesus Christ who love to run back to works, who love to run back to legalism. This is telling us that some from the church at Jerusalem, some from where James was serving, they came and they stirred up trouble. And when these men came, Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles. He pulled back from his new friends in Christ because he was afraid of what his old friends in Christ might think. Peter's old friends had a stricter standard when it came to food, and Peter didn't want his old friends to think that he was slipping. Hear the principle given to us here in the Word of God. When you try to make yourself look good by following someone else's standards, then you divide yourself from other believers in Jesus Christ. You separate yourself to exclude those who don't measure up. You consider yourself better than other believers. This is the mindset that is out there. It's alive and well today, isn't it? That says, eat what I eat, drink what I drink, look as I look, do as I do. And then and only then I'm going to have fellowship with you. Hogwash. That's the attitude of saying, unless you measure up to my standards, which go way beyond what the scriptures say, then I'm not going to have anything to do with you, even though you're a believer in Christ. Now, you can typically spot a legalist a mile away when accountability to God is replaced by accountability to men. When a person is judgmental and prideful, rules start to take over. Personal preferences are confused with Scripture. A false standard of righteousness is created. Then the focus becomes external and becomes a burden to keep. Paul withstood Peter face to face. I don't think Paul had a choice at this point. I think Paul had to do this because with his actions, with his actions, Peter had publicly sinned and everyone else saw what Peter did. Public sin like this is to be confronted before the church. Now, remember that Paul is, he's still actually confronting his apostleship to the Galatian churches. And he's letting them know that when he had to, he would even stand up to another apostle in Christ. Peter was not without sin. Peter was not above correction. Peter should have known better because he had been the first to receive the understanding about God's acceptance of the Gentiles. Peter was the first to preach to the Gentiles. It was in Acts 10, you remember, where Peter was told directly by God not to call anything or anyone impure that God has made clean. 
Peter had been told directly by God that he should not look upon the Gentiles as inferior people who God would not redeem. And then right after, what happened? Do you remember from your own studies in Acts 10? Right after, a Gentile Roman officer named Cornelius asked Peter to come and share the gospel message with him. And Cornelius and his family members, they became Christians. And Peter knew firsthand about fellowship with Gentile believers. So by the time Peter gets up to Antioch, by the time Peter traveled all the way up there, he already knew that God had broken down those barriers between Jews and Gentiles. He understood the true meaning of Christian freedom. And the text is telling us here in verse 12 with the imperfect tense that Peter repeatedly had no problem eating with the Gentiles. It wasn't a big deal. But that, that was before the legalists showed up. Peter was being a hypocrite. And this message corrupts the gospel of Christ. You see, the implications alone from Peter's actions were heretical. They were heretical. And maybe he had the right motives. Maybe his motives were to keep the peace. But what did he end up doing? He gave in. He compromised. And I cannot help but think how tormented he must have been inside, knowing that he had gone directly against the revelation of God. You see, this wonderful apostle to Jesus Christ was confusing and hurting believers. He gave in to fear and he ended up undermining the gospel. And even worse is that Paul was the only one who seems to have recognized it. Verse 13 it says, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. On a small wall near the main entrance to the Alamo in San Antonio, Texas, there's a portrait with the following inscription that says, James Butler Bonham. No picture of him exists. This portrait that they have hanging is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, who greatly resembled his uncle. And it was placed there by the family so that people may know the appearance of the man who died for freedom. Now hear me on this. No literal portrait, no matter what you see in some churches, no literal portrait of Jesus exists either. The likeness of the son who makes us free is to be seen instead in the lives of his people. And this was the problem in verse 13. The Jewish Christians were giving in. They were denying the Savior, trying to fit in, trying to make themselves look good. And when you do this, when you try to make yourself look good in front of other Christians, you know what you're doing? You're coming to church and you're lying. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to others. And this was causing a lot of hurt and a lot of damage to the body of Christ. Because when you do that, when you try to make yourself look good, it hurts others because it causes them to live up to a standard that you yourself can't even keep. All you're doing is being a hypocrite, pretending to be something that you're not, which is exactly what Paul accused Peter of doing. Barnabas was the first pastor of the church at Antioch, and Peter's hypocrisy led him even astray. This wasn't just a mistake. This was not just an innocent mistake. Everyone makes mistakes. This was something more. You know, it reminds me of the guy 
who had purchased movie tickets for his girlfriend and himself. While he got popcorn, she went inside to go ahead and find the seats. And by the time that he was served, the previews were already being shown. So he stumbled down through the dark, sat down and gave his girlfriend a kiss. And then he heard a familiar voice from the back of the theater say, Honey, I'm back here. <laughs> Paul wasn't calling out just an innocent mistake because Barnabas and the other Jewish Christians there, they should have known better. You see, hypocrisy here in the text, it literally means to play act or pretend. It was used in the Bible days of actors putting on a show, and that is exactly what you do when you focus on external standards. You end up putting on a show because you can't meet those standards yourself, so you end up play acting. You end up pretending to be something that you're not. Simply why? Because of your pride in your heart. But it doesn't change you. It doesn't help to transform you to be more and more like Jesus Christ. You deceive yourself. You deny the truth of the gospel. You stray away from the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says Peter and his friends were doing by trying to follow the Jewish standards of righteousness. So here comes Paul's reaction, and it's not soft and it's not gentle, starting in verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Why would you do that? Peter deserved a public rebuke at this point because by their actions, they were forcing Gentile believers to behave like Jews in order to be accepted. That is a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel teaches that God accepts every person who puts their faith in Christ. See, whenever our actions do anything to divide or exclude other believers, we're walking away from the truth of the gospel. And that is actually because Jesus died to bring his people together. He died to break down the rules of men that divide us, Jew and Gentile. He died to reconcile us not only to God, but to one another within the body of Christ. Peter was betraying his own beliefs. He was betraying the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ. Now we should, I think this is an obvious point, we should keep on growing in the grace of God until the end of our days, amen? That's not too hard. But I have to tell you, over the years as a Christian, some of the meanest people I have known, I have met in church. Have you ever noticed that some people come to church week after week, they don't change? They come to church all the time. Every time the building's open, they're there. They never miss. Maybe they give to the church. Maybe they even have some positions in the church. Some would call them the pillars of the church. But man, some of these people can be mean as snakes. But the thing that strikes me is after a while, no one actually expects them to change. Now, I have no doubt that some of them and most of them probably know Jesus, but are they changing? And sadly, sometimes the answer is no. Most churches have a handful of people like that. Let's just turn this the other way. Let's turn this on ourselves. Ask yourselves these questions this morning. Are you changing? Are you more loving than you were a few years ago? Do you have more joy? Not just superficial joy, but the joy of Jesus Christ in your life. Are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with others? See, God wants you to grow up. His goal is for you to mature and take on the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ, so that you reflect his life. 
But growing old, don't confuse that with growing up in the faith. It's not the same. And you're never, ever going to get there by following a list of rules. You make yourself worse. You divide yourself from others. You deceive yourself. You deny the gospel of Christ. Let me illustrate it this way. Think of your relationship with Jesus Christ like a balloon. Now, there are two ways to keep a balloon in the air. If you fill up a balloon by the old-fashioned way, you know, by blowing on it with your mouth, there's only one way to keep it in the air, and that's by smacking it all the time, just keeping that thing up in the air. It's fun, but that is also, by the way, how a lot of churches today try to keep you motivated. You go to church, and the pastor smacks you on Sunday. Smack, smack, smack. Stop doing this. Get busy with that. Be more generous. And the people give for a week. Do missions. Everybody signs up for a week and then they go home. Every week they get another hit, another smack to stay afloat. But there's another way to keep a balloon afloat. Fill it with helium. Fill it with helium. Then it floats on its own and there's no smacking constantly needed. And friends, this is exactly what I want for your life, to see you filled with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, to see you filled with his grace, seeing Christ live in you so that you reflect in your life the beauty of God and you take off and soar in your faith. We are declared righteous when we first came to faith. And this is why Paul continues in verse 15. He says, we who are Jews by nature, not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by what? Faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by what? Faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Paul refers to the Gentiles as sinners in verse 15. All he's saying with that is that for Jewish believers, because of God's revelation to them, they of all people should know how to be justified. Obeying the Mosaic laws, obeying the laws of the Old Testament, they can't justify anyone, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter who you are, because no one can obey the law. The law can only condemn us, not declare us righteous before God. Justification before God comes by faith. I hope that's clear enough to you in these verses. He declares you righteous. Paul mentions this three different times in verse 16. In Christ Jesus, your debt to God has been paid and the righteousness of Christ has been put into your account. Meaning God now considers you as righteous as Christ himself, accepted by God. So if God did this for you at your salvation, let me ask you a question. Why would you turn back to trying to fill that balloon all on yourself? Why would you go back to good works? Why would you try to earn favor with God now? You couldn't before. You never could do it before. No man can. So why would you try it now? And this is what Paul is about to tell us. Pick it up again with me in verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. Here's an understatement. Boy, do a lot of people get justification and sanctification all messed up in the church today, constantly. It's an epidemic. 
That's what the Galatians were doing, by the way. They were seeking to be justified by the law when Christ had already set them free. You see, Paul is teaching us that God not only declares you righteous, but he's able to make us righteous. He will begin the process of changing you from the inside out. Christ living in us, Christ living through us. You see, Paul was addressing at this point those who thought that the doctrine of justification by faith will lead to sin. And so that they needed to do something about this. They needed to put people back under the law. And if being justified by faith in Christ made men sin, then Christ would be a promoter of sin, he's saying. Paul's saying here in verse 17, if Peter, Paul, and the Jewish believers, after having been justified by faith in Christ, if they ate with the Gentiles, and the legalists then came along and referred to them as sinners like the Gentiles, did this mean that Jesus promoted sin? Certainly not, because we're not under the law. And so in verse 18, Paul actually turns it, and he uses it himself as an illustration at this point. And he says, if he built up the law, if he built up that distinction again between the Jews and the Gentiles, if he built those fences again, then he would have been in sin. Then he would have been making himself a transgressor. But Paul was not under the law, praise God. And so he testifies in verse 19, I through the law died to the law because the law itself looked ahead to the death of Christ. The animal sacrifices foreshadowed the coming of the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. The law condemned. The law demanded death for sin. It offered no hope of righteousness for sinners. But that is what it set Paul free from the law. Because the death that the law demanded was accomplished by Jesus Christ. Because of the death of Christ, as a believer, you have died to the law once for all. The believer shares in Christ's death, which enables us to live for God. The law has no more claim on us. Hear that point. The law has no more claim on us. We are no longer under condemnation, and we are free as believers in Jesus Christ to live for God. And that's what Paul was doing. He was living to God when he ate with the Gentiles in Antioch. And Paul would later say in Romans 7, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another. To who? To him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. I heard about a tombstone that really understood this truth. It read this, John Evans, born 1840, died 1915 at the age of two. Now, by my math, that's 75 years, not two years. And on the back of the tombstone was Galatians 2.20. You see, John Evans became a Christian at the age of 73, two years before his death. And he told his family and friends before he died that he had really only lived life for two years because of the freedom of saving faith in life in Christ. Verse 20 in your text, let's read it. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I died when Christ died. 
He died in my place for sin. So now, according to the law, Paul's saying, I'm dead. I no longer live. There is no double jeopardy. The law cannot condemn me twice. And since I'm already dead, according to the law, now I'm free. Now I'm set free to let Christ live his life in and through me. Now I can truly live by faith in Christ who loved me and died for me. This is the secret right here. If you want to grow in your faith, I got to tell you, pay attention to Paul's words. This is the secret to growing in the grace of God. It's not by trying to follow a list of rules invented by men. It's depending on Christ to live his life through you. And it's not automatic, is it? Because Paul said he lived by faith in the Son of God. Paul was teaching, if Christ loved me enough to give himself for me, then he loves me enough to live out his life in me. Paul stood amazed and motivated by God's amazing grace and love. Now, it has been correctly stated that if righteousness comes by keeping the law, the cross was the biggest mistake in the universe. Paul said it this way in verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. When I try to keep the rules under my own strength, then I set aside the grace of God, and I treat Christ's death as nothing. But the law, it can only condemn you. If you want to grow in Christ, don't depend on rules. Don't depend on anything other than Christ. Depend on him. Depend on his word. Let him live through you. You see, when temptation to sin or drift away from God comes knocking at the door, let Jesus be the one to answer. Let his power and his love and his grace flow through you. Let his life and his word live in you. Because when we understand that we are justified by God's grace through faith alone, The peace of Christ lives in us and the freedom of Christ lives in us because we recognize that Jesus paid it all and there's nothing we can do. When we understand that sanctification is living daily with this same trust, this same faith in Christ, then we can see that grace is the way to life and grace is also the way to live. Paul explained that he'd been crucified with Christ. Do you understand what that means? It's more than just saying the simple words, he died for me and blowing it off at that. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he bore the entire load of your sin. He took on the suffering. He took on the pain. He took on the punishment and the darkness that were all part of the rightful penalty that you and I should have borne. He died in our place. The Roman historian Seneca described the horror of the crucifixion and argued that it would be better to die any other way than to be tortured in such a death. And then he wrote this. He said, can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb or letting out his life drop by drop rather than experiencing death once for all? The Bible tells us that Jesus was beaten before he was crucified. This was very common before execution. The Romans would often use a whip. They had lashes that were studded with either bones or pellets, or sometimes both. And the Romans were not limited to just 40 strokes, the maximum allowed by Jewish law. It was not uncommon to beat the victim to the brink of death. The whipping left the victim with deep cuts in the back and on the legs. Many 
died beneath the whip, the blood loss would have been considerable. Others lost their sanity. Few remained even conscious. And then came that march to the execution ground. It was this march to Golgotha that Christ was to carry that top beam of the cross. The cross beam was about five to six feet long and weighed between 75 to 125 pounds. And before being nailed to the cross, the executioners would take the clothing, of course, from the victims. And then a Roman soldier would feel for that depression in the wrist, a bony area connecting the wrist to the hand. And he would then have driven a heavy wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep, deep, deep into the wood. And one nail would be driven through a wooden plaque and then through both heels at once. With the feet pinned between the post and the plaque, the victim could not pull free of that nail. The suffering of the crucifixion came in many, many forms. Probably one of the least concerns to any victim was actually the public disgrace because the more immediate concerns were the pain of the nails along with things that we don't even think about, the persistence of, of gnats and flies and the birds that would be impossible to ward off as you're pinned to a cross. And as the hours and sometimes days dragged on to victims, they suffered, they suffered horribly. They suffered thirst and hunger and exhaustion and congestion and difficulty, even breathing. You see, this is what it means when the Bible says that Christ took my place on the cross. Jesus died a, a shameful death, a shameful, horrible death of a convicted criminal, put to death by execution in the most painful and shameful way man could devise in any place. Christ took our place. He suffered our punishment. We should have been nailed to that cross, but Jesus Christ took our place. The teaching of Galatians 2 is that the law has never saved anyone. Not one single person's been saved by the law. The law has never made a person righteous. The law shows us our inability to meet God's standards on our own. The law convicts, the law condemns those who violate it. But the beautiful, beautiful teaching of Scripture this morning is that when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we were made dead to the law because the penalty the penalty has been paid for by Christ, meaning that we receive our justification and our standing before God through him. But all we do, Christians, when we come back to this idea in our lives of trying to establish our righteousness through works is frustrate the grace of God because we've been risen in Christ to live. I want you to notice that Paul didn't stop with the fact that he was crucified with Christ. Go back to verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, but what? It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is saying that as Christ died, so he died. And as Christ arose, so Paul has risen to a resurrected life in Christ. It is the life of Christ living in us now. See, I have eternal life and I will live forever with Jesus Christ. Do you understand that basic truth? Can you say that? Because that changes everything. And because Christ is living in us, when we submit to him, when we let him drive the car in life, we begin to live as new men, new women. We begin to live like Christ is living in us. 
Paul said in Romans 6, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also what? Walk in the newness of life. Picture your life, if you would, your life in Christ like a glove. Christ is the hand and you are the glove. The glove is powerless before the hand comes into the glove. But now that the hand has come in, all sorts of good things can happen. But don't try to let that glove do eternal things under its own power. It can't. Let the hand, let the Savior empower you to live for him. A little girl named Carol had received Christ as her Savior when she was very, very young. But listen to what she learned in her faith. As she got a little bit older, when she got to be only about 10 years old, she, as a young believer, wanted to figure out how to please God, how to live for him. I think there's a lot of Christians struggling with that. She wanted to know how to become a strong Christian that depends on the grace of God by faith in every decision day by day. Her father spent much time with her, teaching her from the Bible. He showed her that the only way for victory over sin, the only way for victory over the desire, the constant plague of man, desire to live for self, is by recognizing our death with Christ and letting Christ live his life in us. And then Carol made a decision. It was a decision that changed her life forever. She wrote in her Bible as she began to recognize these same truths from Galatians. She said this, I truly died with Jesus and the old Carol was put away on the cross with him. But here was the decision that she wrote years after her salvation. She said on the fourth day of October, I mean to live by his life and for him all my life, not I, but Christ. She had it right. She had it right. The person we were before Christ died with Jesus on the cross he died. That person's gone. Every believer is going to stumble. You are going to stumble in your faith. I'm going to stumble in my faith. But the only way to overcome sin is to let Jesus Christ live his life through us. That is the life that we have been given, and that is the life that we've been called to live. Not I, but Christ. Can you echo those words with me this morning? Not I, but Christ. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.